These last few weeks, we have been looking at a series we've entitled Made New. We've been talking about the new life that we experience in Christ, and we've explored the promise of the new life that comes to us by our being united to Christ by faith. Last week, we looked at the power of new life that is ours through his death and resurrection. And next week, we're going to return again to Romans chapter 6 to look at the practice of new life. But this morning, I wanted to take what is a unique opportunity on this day to pivot a little bit away from Romans chapter 6, but to stay on the topic of life. Many of you know that today is National Sanctity of Life Sunday. Fifty years ago today, uh, the Supreme Court ruled uh, in 1973, Roe v. Wade, that they legalized abortion for any purpose in the United States. And in 1984, then-President Ronald Reagan uh, declared that January the 22nd would be National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And since that time, churches and evangelical Christians and advocates For life, from all walks of life, have set aside this day to pray for, to remember, and to celebrate the dignity of every human life, while also using it as an opportunity to continue to advocate for the most vulnerable in our society. And today is a historical day because today is the first Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in a post-Roe world, as we saw just over the last year where the Supreme Court ruled uh, that abortion is not a constitutional right and handed that back to the states, which was a victory in the judicial system for those who have advocated for 50 long years for a right to life for the preborn. And some have accused, perhaps, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday of being a political ploy or being a partisan practice. But this morning, thousands of churches like ours are taking the opportunity to preach about the inherent dignity bestowed upon every human life by our Creator. And so this morning, I've entitled our sermon time together, The Protection of New Life. And I want us to see this morning from the scriptures that this idea of the sanctity of human life did not originate with Ronald Reagan. It didn't originate with any president or politician. But the idea of the sanctity of life originates from the pages of the scripture. And it is a hallmark of the Christian faith and tradition, and that if we are ever going to truly be a church committed to the great commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor, even the most vulnerable neighbor as ourselves, and be committed to the great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. If we are ever truly to be a church committed to the great commandment and the great commission, then it will be built on the foundational truth that every human life matters to God and is precious in his sight. You see, we, we cannot claim to love God and to serve God and not love and serve those made in his image, especially the lost 
and the least and the lowly. And so I want to take a little bit of a different approach this morning. Rather than looking at one central text as we usually do, I want us to look at three different texts this morning to help us answer three questions here on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Here are the three questions that I want us to answer this morning. First is this, why is human life meaningful? Why is human life meaningful? We have to understand something about the meaning of life if we're going to understand why human life is meaningful. Secondly, when does human life begin? When does human life begin? And third, what implications does this have for the Christian and for the church? Why is every human life meaningful? When does life begin? And if we answer those two questions, what implications does this have for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, and for the church, the people of God? And what I hope we'll see this morning from three, these three texts by answering these three questions is simply this, that as creatures made in God's image, every human life has dignity, value, and is worth protecting. That as creatures made in God's image, every human life has dignity, value, and is worth protecting. Look with me here at the first book of the Bible in the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. The first chapter of the first book of the Bible we see God's design for humanity. And we see why life itself is meaningful. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is the end of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And on the sixth day, it says that God sees all that he has made and that it is good. And then on the sixth day, he says this, starting in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here on the sixth day of creation, God creates human beings. And these verses give us insight into both God's intention and God's purpose for humanity. And so I want to note just two things from these verses that will help us to construct what I'm calling a a whole life ethic. Not just a pro-life ethic, but a whole life ethic. And the first way that we'll construct a whole life ethic from Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 is by understanding that every human life has value. Every human life has value. Verse 26, the Lord says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. You see, human beings are the crowning achievement of God's creation. And human life then, is more valuable than other life because only human beings are stamped with the image of their creator. Now, let me save myself a couple emails from some dog people in the room that are like, don't disparage my fur baby. Listen to me. 
The point of this is not to diminish the rest of creation. It's not to diminish animals or the environment or all the other things that God created good. No, no, no. God's purpose in this is instead to elevate the value of humanity over the rest of creation. Uh, Herman Bavink, who is a theologian that I'm sure all of you are reading in your spare time, Bavink writes this in his book, Our Reasonable Faith. He says, in this particular counsel of God, the special emphasis is placed on the fact that man is created after the image and likeness of God, and therefore stands in an entirely different relationship to God than all other creatures. It is said of no other creatures, not even angels, that they were created in God's image and that they exhibit his image. Humanity, in each of its parts and in its entirety, is organically created in the image and likeness of God. But long before Bavink said this, the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have crowned him with glory and honor and made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. We see the scriptures teach the value of every human life. But secondly, in verse 27, we see that every human life has dignity. Every human life has dignity. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Now, the Latin word here is imago dei, the image of God. What, what does it mean that we are created in the image of God? Uh, in their tremendous little book, The Gospel of Our King, uh, Bruce Ashford and Heath Thomas, I think, do a tremendous job of helping us to see the image of God in three ways. The first way that we understand the image of God is structurally, that structurally we are created in the image of God. This means that the whole person in his or her God-given structure is the image of God. Human beings image God or reflect God by virtue of simply being human. Now, this is important for us to understand that the first way we image God is structurally. Simply by being human, we are imaging or reflecting God. Now, you might say, well, why, why is that important? That seems pretty simple. Well, it's important because of the push of secularism and the push of modernity in an industrialized age where the value of a human being is dependent on what that human being can produce for society. And so in our age, our value is determined by what we do. But here we read that human beings, apart from anything that they can do, Image God by simply being human. Why is this important? This is incredibly important for the way that we think about ethically the way we consider the preborn, those who are still in the womb, who are totally dependent, can do nothing, add nothing, if you will, 
to an industrialized society. We think about them as being made in the image of God. We think about those with severe or advanced special needs. They are not less than or devalued because they cannot add to society. They are more than their utility because they image God. This is important for us to understand. We have to understand that we are made in God's image before anything that we do simply by being human. We do not have dignity because of our utility, but by our very nature. Secondly, structurally, we are made in God's image, but also functionally. Functionally, we are made in God's image. We image God by who we are, but also by doing things in certain ways. We do image God as well by the things that we do. We were made in his image to operate as co-regents over creation, meaning that God placed man in the garden and called them to be fruitful and to to multiply, to cultivate, to create, to promote human flourishing and the flourishing of all creation. This is the creation mandate that we find here in Genesis chapter one and two, that man was created to worship God and to represent him in all that they do in creation. Third, we image God in our relational capacity. God himself is triune. He exists himself eternally in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And out of the love of that eternal holy community comes God's creation. And we too have been created in God's image for relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship within ourself and relationship with his creation. And as we pursue those things, we image God to his creation. And at the end of Genesis chapter one, God sees all that he has made and he declares it very good. What's changed? From good at the end of day five to very good at the end of day six, it's the creation of human life. And so we see from the first pages of the scripture that human life, every human life, is valuable and has inherent dignity because it was created in the image of its creator. Now, if this is true about human life, we have to answer the question, when does human life begin? When does human life begin? The Bible instructs us in this way too. So let's look at the beginning of life from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. This is King David composing a song extolling the wonderful knowledge and presence of God. David writes that there is nothing that God does not know and there is no place that God is not already present. And listen what he gives as an example. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
As an example, David uses this idea that the Lord formed him and knew him even in his mother's womb. Now we understand that this is not just simply David's opinion, that David is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we read these words, not simply as the words of King David, but we read these as the words of the Lord. And it would seem to imply to us from Psalm 139 and from other passages like it, that human life begins in the womb. And based on the teachings of scripture here and elsewhere, based on early Jewish and Christian tradition and what can be known about God's moral law through natural revelation, there is a strong argument presented through all of those channels that human life begins and should be protected from the moment of conception, not just the moment of birth. We live in a technological age where we have insight perhaps more so than anyone who has lived before us, to what is actually going on in a mother's womb as the baby begins to form. And we recognize now, we see these pictures on sonograms and we see the little baby beginning to develop. We recognize that all that separates a child in utero from a child outside the womb is truly their location, their size, and their level of dependence and development. The ESV Study Bible has a tremendous little article written at the end about Christian ethics, and and they write this, that the witness of Scripture, as conformed by the testimony of the early church, is that every human being, from conception through natural death, is to be respected as a person created in the image of God, whose life has special dignity by virtue of his or her relationship to the Creator. So we see here from the scriptures, from early Christian tradition, from God's moral law revealed to us in natural revelation, that human beings are made in God's image and that human life begins at conception. What then are the ethical implications for the Christian and for the church? And this is where we move to our final point this morning, to the protection of life, the protection of life. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable And the parable, the point of the parable is he's talking about the end times, the final judgment that will occur. And he says that at that final judgment, every person will stand before the Lord and he will divide them as a shepherd divides the sheep and the goats into the righteous, those who have trusted Jesus by faith and the unrighteous, those who have trusted in someone or something else. And he says the king will speak to those who are truly his And he will say, blessed are you, well done, for when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And the righteous in this parable are confused by this. And they say to the king in Matthew 25, verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The righteous in the story here questioned Jesus as to when they had served him. 
And Jesus tells them that when they serve the least and the lost and the lowly, they had rendered their service unto their Lord. And I think this is an important reminder for us this morning as followers of Jesus that the work to serve and protect life, especially the life of the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed, the weak, this is not a, a service that in some way earns us God's love or affection. We know that we are loved by God as his children who've been created in his image for his glory. Sin has broken our relationship with him, but Jesus has come by his life, death, and resurrection to restore and reconcile what was lost at the fall. And now we are made new by our faith in Jesus Christ. And that God has set us free from sin and shame to walk in newness of life. And as a part of that newness of life, we are to serve the least and the lost and the lowly. And in so doing, render our service unto the one who is our Lord. We understand this. We know this. We know what it means to serve someone by serving someone else, right? One of the best ways that you can show me that you love me and honor me is by serving the ones that I love. And as a church committed to the great commandment and the great commission, we serve Christ by our efforts to honor and protect all human life as precious and valuable. You see, as creatures made in God's image, every human life has dignity, value, and is worth protecting. And so how do we do this? What steps can we take to work for the protection of human life? The first thing that we can do is we can pray. And this is something that every single person, no matter what stage or station of life you are in, can do. Every Christian and every church can pray, can pray that God would give us the opportunity to stand for human life, to serve those who are most vulnerable, to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the cry of the oppressed and that God would give us that opportunity and that when the time comes for us to do it, that we would take it, that we would not allow fear or convenience or discomfort to dissuade us from doing the work of protecting and valuing life. You see, what prayer does is prayer forms and softens our heart to the issues of life. That's what prayer does. And so long before we can start the practice or long before we start these actions, we pray that God would form in us a compassion and out of that compassion would come conviction and out of that conviction would come action. And so we ask the Lord first and foremost to see how we might pray to protect life. But secondly, after we pray, we do begin to practice. We have to begin asking the question, how can we practice a whole life ethic in our daily lives? How can you or how can your family or how can your small group or how can our church promote human life and flourishing? And we can do this in a number of ways. We already do this. Some of you are already deeply invested in adoption or foster care, or you're serving in an after-school mentoring program, or you've served at a prison or a food pantry. You're donating to a local pregnancy care center or a, a, an organization that maybe rescues trafficked women or children. There are numerous ways that we can do this. 
And listen, let me just say this. As you kind of begin to think about how you can do this, the temptation in the age that we live in is to be overwhelmed by the opportunity, right? We start looking at all of these wonderful organizations that are fighting to protect life, and we just start going, I can't do everything. And listen, you're not called to do everything. But don't let the fact that you can't do everything keep you from doing anything. God has called us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to do something. What's one step that you can take today, this week, this month, to protect those who are most vulnerable? Micah 6.8, the prophet Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Third, not only do we pray and practice, but finally, we, third, we petition. Romans chapter 13, the scriptures teach that all authority, including governmental authority, that they are established by God and that they have been entrusted by him to work for the good and the flourishing of humanity. But because we live in a world broken by sin, we know that governments and rulers and kings do not always work for the flourishing of humanity. However, regardless of that, as followers of Christ who have been called to be good Christians and good citizens in the country in which God has placed us, we are called to continue to petition the authorities and to pray for them, to pray and petition that they would govern in a way that promotes human flourishing. And so as Christians and and as the church, we should seek to encourage our local, state, and federal government to enact and uphold laws that protect life at every stage. This is the responsibility of being good citizens and good churches in the free country that God has, by his grace, placed us in. We want to petition and encourage our local, state, and federal officials to enact and uphold laws to protect life at every stage. But listen to me. Notice that I put practice before petition. And I did that intentionally. Because before we can petition our governing authorities to enact and uphold laws that protect life at every stage, and we ought to do that, we ought to recognize that the responsibility of doing something lies with us first. You see, it's very easy in our day and age to vote a certain way at the ballot box and call ourselves pro-life while doing nothing in our daily lives to alleviate suffering or to protect human life. That's not the kind of whole life ethic that the scriptures call us to. You see, our voice and our vote are important. And being a pro-life Christian or a whole-life Christian is certainly not less than your voice or your vote, but it is more than that. Our voice and our vote should reflect our actions and our affections, not operate as a substitute for them. And so we pray and we practice and we petition. And third and finally, we partner. You see, we don't have to reinvent the wheel as a church, nor should every church start an adoption ministry or a food pantry or a home for trafficked women. There are some of organizations and Christian ministries who are already doing these things. And so here at Lake Murray, what we want to do is we want to look to partner with whole life and 
pro-life, like-minded organizations who are doing the hard work in our community to protect life and to help families flourish both here in Lexington, in our state, around our country, and around the world. And we already do this in a number of ways. Through the South Carolina Baptist Convention, we partner with Connie Maxwell Children's Ministries to serve foster and adoptive families in our community. You had the opportunity back over the fall to hear from Jay Boyd, their, uh, assistant, their vice uh, president, to talk a little bit about the work that we do in partnering with Connie Maxwell. We partner with our Heart for Schools initiative to care for children, families, teachers, and faculty of our local schools. We've partnered throughout our time with local assisted living facilities to care for the elderly and the infirmed. We do this in a number of ways. But this morning, as we close out our time together, I'm excited to announce a new partnership that we've begun this year. And I'm excited to announce it on this Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I want to play in just a moment a short video from Levee Pregnancy Care Center. And then at the end of our time today, we're going to hear from their executive director, Milena Richardson, who is going to share with us a little bit about the work that they're doing and how our church can partner with them to ensure that families flourish in our community. And so I'd love for you to watch just this brief video about Levee Pregnancy Care Center, and then we'll have the opportunity to hear from their executive director in just a moment. Created in the image of the Creator, a promise, a masterpiece, a life. On January 22nd, 1973, a decision was made in our nation to legalize abortion at any stage for any reason. 49 years later, that decision was finally reversed. 49 years of prayer and perseverance. 49 years of being a voice for the unborn, proclaiming their humanity and their possibility. 49 years of striving to reach their moms and dads, proclaiming there's hope and a future. 49 years of waiting for life to be upheld in our nation. And here we are. This January is the first post-Roe in our nation. Roe versus Wade, as we know it, is no longer. As we grieve that loss of over 60 million lives and the devastating cost to their moms and dads, we give thanks for the lives that will be saved and protected from this date forward. Because of this decision, already thousands of moms have chosen life. The lives of thousands of children have been saved. They will celebrate a first birthday. They will experience their first day of kindergarten, their first best friend, their first home run, their first dance, their high school graduation, and so many things beyond. We celebrate this victory, and yet know there is much more to be done. There are still unexpected pregnancies. It is still a crisis. They still need hope and help. Our services are needed now more than ever. You can make a difference for life. You can pray. You can give. You can serve. Will you?
We are incredibly thankful to have with us this morning Milena Richardson, who is the executive director at Levee Pregnancy Care Center. And Milena, you and I have just had the opportunity really over the last couple of months to get to know one another. And uh, I came and sat with you in your office just uh, back in the fall and heard a little bit of your story and heard a little bit about the work and the ministry that Levy is doing in our community. It was just uh, deeply moved by that time. And I know since then, several of our uh, volunteers have been there as a part of uh, the ministry that you're doing at Levy. And so just really thankful for your time this morning. But some of our folks perhaps know a little bit about Levy and the work that you do, but many of our folks may not. So can you share just a little bit about the ministry of Levy and how long have you been in the community and what services you're providing? to promote uh, family flourishing here in Lexington and the surrounding really entire metro area. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to be here this morning to share with you a subject that I'm very passionate about. Um, The Lord called me into this ministry over 10 years ago to share my abortion story with women in the hopes that they would make a different decision than the one that I had made so long ago. Uh, We actually, everything we do is free and confidential, so we don't ask for any insurance, we don't ask for any money. Uh, We're able to provide those services because of donors um, that come alongside of us. We can provide a urine pregnancy test and we can give them verification of the pregnancy to use for Medicaid or WIC or any other social service that they might need. We also can do the first ultrasound. Um, 80% of women who are abortion-minded and see that precious baby on the ultrasound machine will choose life. So it's a huge tool that we can use to show women their baby. Um, After that uh, medical procedure is done, we don't medically see them any longer. We we, uh, refer them to an OB in the area. Uh, We then do resources like classes, Bible studies. Um, We just recently started an evening parenting class, and five of the women from your church actually are partnering with us and meeting with four of our clients. Uh, So we just have had two classes. Tomorrow will be our third, and then you all will be throwing a baby shower for the four clients on February 19th. So we're so thankful for your partnership in doing that. Lavia has been here for five years. We just celebrated our fifth year in November of 2022. Um, I personally have only been here less than two years. I've been the executive director for just over a year. Um, But I can just see how God is moving in this community, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. Mm. You know, I know you mentioned, the video mentioned, and I talked about at the very beginning, we are at the first Sanctity of Life Sunday in a post-Row world. And I think a, a lot of people perhaps thought that when uh, the Dobbs case, when the justices overturned Roe v. Wade, that, that there would be uh, a major change, that all of a sudden there would be seismic shifts. And certainly there have been, there's been progress that's been made. But I know that especially for, for you and for organizations like yours, there are still significant challenges that you face. And so do you maybe share some of those challenges that, that uh, obviously we could probably assume some, but maybe some of the challenges that you're facing uh, each and every day and week in and week out uh, as you work to kind of care for women in our community. Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> with Roe versus Wade being overturned, pregnancy centers are actually needed more so now than ever before, mm-hmm. especially with the econo- economic situation that's going on. Um, I have a lot of women who come to us after they've had their baby Um, Before I was there, uh, not a lot of work was done with women 
after they had their baby, but we actually have had at least a dozen women come back and go through our classes so that we can continue to help them with diapers and wipes and formula. We can help women with a package of diapers, two packages of wipes every month, and a can of formula every week. So um, we also are able to come alongside of them and mentor them. A lot of them don't have support from a, a female figure. A lot of the fathers of the babies don't have the male mentors in their lives. Um, that's a new program we'll be starting is fatherhood, uh, where we can have men come alongside of the fathers of the babies as mentors. And so um, a lot of these men are the ones that are pressuring these women to have abortions. And so it's an opportunity to speak with them so that they understand exactly what it is that they're asking a woman to do by having an abortion. Uh, right now, the issue is Satan doesn't like what we're doing, and yeah. so Google has decided to come up against pregnancy centers. And so when people would Google abortion information, abortion pill, we, would, we used to come up, but now we don't. Uh, pregnancy centers don't come up uh, because Google just wants to give us a hard time. So we actually are now paying for Google ads, and it's about $2,000 a month that we weren't expecting to have to pay. But our name is getting out there, and we are seeing more and more abortion-minded clients again. Mm. You know, one of the things that you and I got the opportunity to talk about, and obviously we could share stories the rest of the day probably, but uh, is there one maybe specific story of hope uh, that you've seen uh, in your time there as executive director that, that you could share with us about a client that maybe has walked through uh, the process at, at Levy? Yes, absolutely. We had our annual dinner in September, and five of our clients videotaped their testimonies for us to show our donors. And one specific client is coming to mind, and I have worked with her since I've been at the pregnancy center. Uh, she came in very abortion determined. She was not going to have this baby. She had four children, single mom, didn't see how she could have a fifth child. And so um, we follow up with them after we see them. And I've tried calling her and texting her. And the Lord just really placed her on my heart. So I kept calling and texting her to check on her. And I finally texted her and just said, I want to make sure you're OK. I haven't heard what decision you finally made about the pregnancy. So if you wouldn't mind just letting me know you're OK. So she sent me a text and said, I'm OK. I'm still with child. And so I invited her to come in and speak with me and meet with me. And so she did. She came in every week until that baby was born. And we were able to bless her with everything she needed for that baby. We provided everything from baby clothes all the way up to cribs, uh, strollers, car seats, swings, everything she needed. And so. She actually was, um, had been hurt by the church, and so she was kind of closed off to the Lord. But after she saw everything we did was in his name, she really has turned her life back around to him. And so that's why we need the church to come alongside of us so we can bridge the gap and bridge them into the church from the center so that they have that Christian community. I just finished a book uh, last night about the history of abortion in America. And uh, towards the end of the book, the authors are kind of unpacking some of the things that they've learned along the way. And something you mentioned just reminded me of what they said that, uh, you know, um, oftentimes we talk about crisis pregnancies. And what they found is that the pregnancy itself is not often the crisis, there is a crisis that is ongoing that the pregnancy just simply compounds. 
and the need therein for women who are, as you mentioned, perhaps uh, abortion-minded or being pressured by uh, either internally or externally uh, to pursue abortion, that they need to just have one person, even just one person who operates as a support network to say, I'll be there with you, I'll walk with you. Uh, but how, more, uh, how much more important it is to have a community there and a support network. And, you know, uh, Melana, one of the things that you shared uh, with me and you mentioned even just a moment ago um, is your own uh, abortion story. And I know one of the things that you do at Levy is not only minister to women who are pregnant and perhaps abortion-minded or considering abortion, but you also minister to women uh, who have abortion as a part of their past. And so, so what would you say, what, off, what word of hope or encouragement would you offer to perhaps a woman or, or a man in our congregation? If the statistics hold true, we know that there are probably several folks among us here today who have experienced this as a part of their past. And, and so what word of hope or encouragement would you offer to a woman or a man who's suffering with this as a part of their past? Well, unknown to me, the 40% of women in the church are post-abortive. I didn't know that number until I was called into this ministry, and I thought I was fine. I'd had an abortion when I was 18 years old. Um, After you have an abortion, you just shove it down, try to act like it never happened. You don't process through it, Um, but the Lord explained very clearly to me that I needed healing, and so I went through the Forgiven and Set Free Bible study, and... I was not aware that I was carrying a boulder on my back until I was released from that. And just working through the acceptance, denial, um, and being forgiven and set free, I've worked through that. And Satan would like nothing more than to keep me in chains and keep me in the dark and keep me quiet. Um, But I know that the Lord is going to use this for good. And so um, I work with many women, either clients or from the community that need to work through the Forgiven and Set Free Bible Study, and it's confidential. So if anyone wanted to work through it with me, they just need to call the center and ask for me or leave your name and number. You don't have to say why you're calling. You can just let them know that you want to speak with me, and then I would be happy to meet with you, and we can work through it. Um, A lot of women think, well, I've asked the Lord for forgiveness, so I'm good, but truly there there needs to be healing through it needs to be worked through mm, yeah i you know we've been talking uh, in this series made new about the promise and the power of new life and that god has set us that the christ has set us free to walk in newness of life and that there is no sin that the cross of christ is not sufficient to cover and i th- appreciate that you said just the spiritual uh, warfare that goes into that that uh, i heard one pastor say that satan is pro choice on the way into the abortion clinic and pro life on the way out Uh, And that he wants to keep women and men really specifically in bondage to this past sin. But certainly we recognize that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all sin. That God has provided grace for us in and through him. But there is still an opportunity to walk in healing and that newness of life. And that oftentimes comes through being able to work through that with others, uh, specifically uh, people with experience like yourself. And so uh, one of the things that I'm just very excited about, and we'll mention in just a moment, is a, a way, specific way that we're partnering with Laviv. And I know our time is running short, but would you just maybe talk a little bit about how churches can partner uh, with your organization, uh, with Laviv, to ensure that uh, families flourish in our community? Absolutely. 
So um, obviously we need prayer. Um, as a woman comes into the center and is abortion-minded, we need prayer warriors out there praying for her, for a change of heart, for the advocate that's meeting with her to give the words to her and that she would have courage and boldness to speak whatever truth he lays on her heart. Um, so we need prayer support, obviously monthly giving, donations, so that we can continue to provide the services that we provide to clients for free. Um, that would be um, very helpful. We offer resources. We have a website that you can go on and actually order things from Amazon, and they're directly sent straight to the center. So um, we provide, like I said, everything that a client would need, and if we don't have it, we'll get it. We want them to know that we are there with them. We're going to walk with them. Uh, one thing that I've been looking into is a single mother's ministry, and I know that as a church, we need to maybe come up with something like that because there's only so much that we can do at the center. We need to bridge them, as I was saying earlier, to the church so that they can have Christian community. They can um, be connected with women who can help mentor them. We can do as much as we can, but that's that only goes a certain way. So we need to have the church come alongside of us. Yeah. One of the ways that we're excited to partner with Levy is through a baby bottle campaign. This is actually, I don't usually carry baby bottles in my suit pocket. Um, but one of the ways that we uh, are going to partner with Levy is by doing what we're calling a baby bottle campaign. And so this morning, on your way out, uh, there's a table set up in the lobby, and Milena and some of our volunteers who serve at Levy will be there. If you'll just grab one of these baby bottles, there's instructions on the inside about what they'd like for you to do. We just want you to take the next month, and as you have spare change around your house, make, make it a competition amongst your family, amongst your kids, to just fill this baby bottle up with change and then bring that back to the church. And all of those proceeds will be donated to Levy and the life-saving work that they're doing uh, in our community. And so I'd love for you, for your family, to grab one of these baby bottles on your way out this morning and just do this as a real tangible, simple way that we can support the work that Milena and her staff at Levy are doing. Milena, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our community. And we're very excited to partner with you in the future. This morning, as we close our time together, the band is going to come. I do just want to ask if you would, as we close this morning, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. This has been a, a, a heavy morning, if you will, and certainly I know that for some of you, uh, this will be a more uh, challenging and difficult message than for others, but it truly is a message for each and every one of us. It's a message that reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus valued life so much that he laid down his own for us. And so this morning at the end of our service, as the band comes to lead us in one final song, if you would like someone to pray with you, if you would like to just spend a few moments sharing with someone something that the Lord has laid on your heart, we will have our response team. They'll be in each corner of the room, someone that would love to have the opportunity to just pray with you and speak a word of encouragement and hope for whatever it is the Lord is laying on your heart this morning. God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you, Father, that you are the author of all life. Father, we thank you that Jesus has come to give us new life in him. And so, Father, I pray this morning for any and all in this room, Father, that if there's anyone here who has never put their faith and hope and trust in you, that today might be the day of salvation, that they would find hope, forgiveness, peace, 
repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning for any man or woman in our congregation, Father, who is bearing the weight this morning of past sin, of past shame that's never fully been dealt with. God, I pray that this morning your spirit would meet them right where they sit, that you will remind them that you are a gracious Father, that you are a good God, that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all sin. If we will confess it to you, repent, call out in faith. Father, I pray that you would meet that broken heart right where they sit, that you would bind up those wounds by the power of the gospel, that you would set them free from guilt and shame that Satan would have them to stay in. Father, I pray that we would be a church truly committed to the great commandment and the great commission and committed to seeing the value and dignity of every human life made in your image for your glory. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?